We must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect if we hope to be righteous and acceptable to our heavenly Father. And as we learned last week, glory of glories, wonder of wonders, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and made his dwelling among us in order to secure that much-needed righteousness for us, for all who believe in him. Jesus began his earthly ministry, as we saw, by identifying himself with the sinful people that he came to save. However, he, much to our joy, remained and is and was sinless. So while John came baptizing repentant sinners in the Jordan and rebuking hypocrites who came to him just for the show of being baptized to show some sort of humility, but they had really no desire to turn to God and turn from their sin, John rebuked them. But Jesus came to him for the specific purpose of undergoing his baptism of repentance, even though he did not need it, because he had no need for repentance. Jesus had no sin to repent of. And so Jesus coming to John for baptism made it clear that he was subjecting himself to the law of God in order to fulfill the law of God, the entirety of the law of God for you and for me who believe in him. And the result of Christ's perfect life and his wrath-bearing death is that all who come to him in faith are forgiven of their sin. But not only are you forgiven of your sin, but you're also made righteous in the sight of the Father. Now the question you might ask is how? How does that work? Well, at his death, Jesus bore the just and right penalty, the righteous penalty for sin in himself. And this is a penalty that was far too great for any of us to bear, any of us to pay. Jesus bore in himself the wrath of God against sin in our place on our behalf, as our substitute. And all who believe in Jesus Christ, all who turn from sin and turn to Christ, have as a result their sin wiped away. They have their slate wiped clean of all their sin. That's at Jesus' death. In the life of Christ, he perfectly obeyed and perfectly fulfilled the entirety of God's law. He lived the life that qualifies as perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And he also did that in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute. And he applies to everyone with faith and trust in him, he applies, he credits, he reckons that perfect life to us upon faith in him. So the life and the death of Christ purchases and secures both the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness required by God for all who come to him in repentance and faith. And Jesus made this clear. He made this identification with sinners and this substitutionary life clear at the very beginnings of his public ministry when he went to John for baptism. And he subjected himself to the law of God. And as subject to the law of God, after Jesus was baptized... The Spirit immediately, as Mark records, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil. 
And the question you would ask is why? Why would the Spirit drive Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Well, there's a few reasons, not the least of which are these. First, to show that Jesus is the new and better Adam. There are so many parallels, and we'll touch on a few of them as we work through this text. There are so many parallels between the fall of humanity as recorded in Genesis chapter 3 and Christ's wilderness temptations. Jesus is the new and better Adam who enters into history and succeeds where Adam failed. Jesus is the one who stands firm in his obedience to the Father, unlike Adam, who fell as he gave into the pull of sin. And not only is Jesus the new and better Adam, but these wilderness tests also show that Jesus is, secondly, the true Son of God who triumphs where Israel failed. Throughout Scripture, we see that Israel was referred to as a son of God. For example, the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1 to 2 said this. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah or Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So you see, The nation of Israel, the son that God had called up out of Egypt, went on a centuries-long tear of idolatrous disobedience to the commands and the will of the Lord that had been given to them through his servant Moses. As a whole, they failed spectacularly in their calling to worship, serve, and obey the Lord with all their hearts to obey the Lord alone. And so Matthew makes it very clear that the ultimate fulfillment of what Hosea refers to is Christ. When he and his parents, when Jesus and his parents returned to Nazareth after a period of time in Egypt, Matthew records in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, these words. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and this is the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Symbolically, or Jesus, Jesus is the true and beloved son of God. Not symbolically. Jesus is the true and beloved son of God who will, during his wilderness tests, symbolically repeat the history of Israel and perfectly live out the calling that had been given to that nation. In the wilderness, Jesus symbolically reenacts the history of Israel, God's disobedient son. But Jesus, God's beloved son, will be true. He will be faithful. He will be the obedient son that Israel failed to be. Jesus, in contrast to Adam and Israel, reveals himself to be the successful and obedient one, remaining faithful and obedient to the Father where all others have failed. And this, This is good news because it is this success 
that is this righteousness that is credited to us who believe. And so Matthew begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You see, the reader here is shown something quite amazing. While the temptations came from the devil, they were a part of God's plan for redeeming for himself a people by the work of his beloved son. Little did Satan realize as he came to Jesus to tempt him that with each of Christ's successful rebuffs, each time Christ resisted the strategies of the enemy to destroy him, that Jesus was securing the righteousness that he would give as a gift to his people. God in his wisdom and his power and his might truly does work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The Spirit drove Jesus, according to Mark, or in Matthew, led Jesus up into the wilderness for these trials, which ultimately bring us who believe to salvation. Bring us who believe salvation. And note, note where Jesus is led. He's led into the wilderness. Now don't gloss over this. Don't gloss over the fact that he's brought to the wilderness because this is one of the Lord's strategies for us that he calls into seasons of ministry. The Lord tends to bring those for whom he has great plans out of the public eye for a time. He brings them, he brings them into a season of difficulty like we see in the life of Jesus here, in order to prepare them for the demanding and the formidable task that he has assigned them. We see this a couple of, many times throughout Scripture, but a couple of examples are these. God brought Moses up onto the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights in preparation for his dispensation of the law to Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness. Now, preparing Moses to be the one to call the people to obedience, a rather grueling and difficult task, especially given what we know of Israel's wilderness wanderings, right? They consistently disobeyed. They consistently complained and grumbled. And at times, they even sought to kill Moses so that they might return to slavery in Egypt. And the Lord prepared Moses for this arduous and grueling task by bringing him up on that mountain out of the public eye for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the New Testament, when the Lord saved the Apostle Paul, he appointed him apostle to the Gentiles, the proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles, Gentiles being anyone who's not Jewish. And Paul, after seeing the risen Christ, Paul, after being assigned his role and hearing of it, went away into Arabia for three years in preparation for a ministry that would cost him so much by the world's standards. As Paul endured beatings and shipwrecks and lashings and constant danger at every turn, as he would endure cities rioting against him, peoples plotting to kill him. But God prepared and strengthened Paul for this task, and it all began with a time away in preparation. 
And so here now, we are witness to Christ being driven by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil in preparation for the task that has been set before him. What was that task? To seek and save the lost. And something to take note of here as well is that while Satan tries with all of his might and with all of his fury to discredit Jesus by making Jesus distrust his father as he had successfully done in both Adam and Israel, Satan is shown here as the one who can merely react to God's plans and God's purposes. Satan is revealed as one who, while attempting to thwart God's will, only serves to support it and further it. Now, it is true, Satan is powerful. It is true, also, that his power is limited. And we see this as we look at these temptations. Satan's singular and express purpose in these temptations is to frustrate the plans of God, and if possible, to seize God's position as sovereign. He did so during the incarnation of Christ as he sought to attack Christ throughout Christ's earthly ministry. And now he does so as he seeks to devour and he seeks to distract and he seeks to produce mistrust and distrust in us to God's will and God's good commands. But what he means for evil, what he means for yours and my destruction, God means for good. If the Lord allows the enemy to throw us in a pit and to leave us there to rot, as happened to Joseph in the book of Genesis, while we might not, like Joseph, rise to the heights of second in command in all of Egypt, eventually we come to realize that the Lord used our trial for something good, even though Satan meant it for evil. And here, in the wilderness... Satan's intention is to lead Jesus into disobedience and distrust of his Father. But the Father uses this time to demonstrate to us, to the whole world, even more clearly that his beloved Son is worthy. So always remember, as the great reformer Martin Luther used to say, in the final analysis, the devil is God's devil and can never operate outside of the Lord's decree, try as he might. So learn and know this. While it's difficult to grasp, it's difficult to understand, God rules over Satan and does so without himself being guilty of any sin. And this is a comfort for you and I because what it means is that nothing that happens in this world whether it be our isolation at home, whether it be a virus that is making its way through the world, whether it be overreaching governments, whether it be persecution, none of it, nothing that befalls any of us is without purpose or meaning. Instead, it all leads to the glory and the exaltation of God and at the same time to our ultimate good and blessing. So what is Satan doing here? as he approaches Jesus in the wilderness. text says he's tempting. The word for tempt here means to test, to externally entice someone to the performing of evil deeds. And it is this and other tests that we see here in, uh, it is the test that we see here in uh, Matthew chapter 4 that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he wrote these wonderful words in chapter 2 verse 18. 
because he, that's Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And also in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Christ has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And for that reason, he is able to sympathize with us. While the enemy would not have known it at this time, he was producing in Christ the ability to sympathize with his people because Christ now understands exactly what we go through. And notice when. Notice when these temptations at the hands of the devil take place. Look at verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now we know, right, that Jesus is truly God and truly human. And Jesus, being truly human, was at this moment experiencing physical weakness. And as humans, we know, right, if you're anything like me, we know that hunger weakens our resistance. Hunger weakens our resolve. Hunger impacts our mood. If you're anything like me, you know how easy it is to say, I'm going to go on a diet right after we have eaten and feel satisfied and full. And if you're anything like me, you will also know how difficult it is to maintain that diet when your stomachs experience the pangs of hunger. And it's at that moment when food becomes a huge temptation, right? Again, if you're anything like me, you know how much more expensive it is when you go shopping for groceries when you're hungry. Because your resolve and your willpower and your determination is tested, especially as you walk through the aisles with rumbling stomach and you see the pictures of potato wedges and pizzas and chicken nuggets and pierogies and fish sticks. And I could go on and on and on. And this is because hunger tests our resolve. And it's not simply hunger, but also when we're tired or when we're sick. These are all points of weakness that increase our vulnerability to grasping at something, grasping at anything that will bring us relief. And it's Satan who loves to come at us in these moments, the very same moment he went after Christ. However, as we will see, Christ, in, even in these moments of physical weakness, even in this moment of tremendous hunger, he gave Satan absolutely no foothold with which to work. And each of these temptations or tests that Satan brings against Christ, they're designed for, to bring about one goal. They're designed to cause Jesus to bypass the role and the will marked out for him by his Father, the role of suffering at the cross, facing scorn, facing the scorn of those he came to save, and instead propelling Jesus to take the path of self-exaltation. Will Christ remain faithful to the Father? Or will he, like all before him, Adam, Israel, you, me, everyone, succumb to the path of self-exaltation, to the path of self-idolatry, to the path of disobedience to the commands of the Father. And so, 
Satan launches into his first attempt. Look at verse 3. The tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Satan begins with an inquiry into the sort of son that Jesus will be. This is not a doubt to the identity of Christ. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows exactly who this is that he is tempting. We see throughout the Gospels that the demons know who Christ is. For example, Mark records this, that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that's Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And when Jesus healed the man with the legion of demons in Mark 5, 7, they compelled the man, the demons inside him compelled the man to cry out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The devil, agent, devil and his agents understood then and they understand now who Jesus is. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And so when Satan comes to Jesus, the beloved Son of God, at this physical weak point and attempts once again to produce mistrust in our representative head as he had with, in Adam, he comes to him and tries to produce mistrust in our representative head as he did with Adam. Now that phrase, just a quick explanation, representative heads are those whom we are in. We are all either in Adam or we are all either in Christ. They are our two representatives. In Adam we all died as a result of his sin and our sin. In Jesus we are all made alive as a result of his obedience if we put our faith and our trust in him. We are all either in Adam or in Christ. They are the two main representatives of humanity. Now, will Jesus trust God's good word during this moment? Will he follow God's good will? Will he succeed where Adam failed? So what exactly is Satan testing Jesus with in calling upon him to turn loaves into bread? The test boils down to this. If your God's son... You should not have to endure such trials and difficulties. Jesus, you have it in your power to turn these stones into loaves. Why not just provide for yourself? You don't think your father would want that? What kind of father wouldn't want you to eat when you're on the verge of starvation like you are? Use your divine authority to get some food from these stones. Leave off following God's will just this once. He'll understand. You're hungry. Eat. Appease your appetite in your timing. And you can imagine, right? You can imagine hungry Jesus looking down at the stones as Satan in his strategic attempts to bring about the downfall of Christ puts a, if you'll pardon the pun, puts a concrete example of food in front of Christ. Satan put into Jesus' mind a specific food to visualize as he calls on Jesus to distrust his father. Now imagine the temptation. You can picture it, right? The intensely hungry and physically weak Jesus turns his gaze to the stones and remembers in his childhood home all of the freshly baked loaves that he has eaten in his life. The weedy taste and the soft texture of the bread in his mouth 
and that acute remembering of the smell of freshly baking bread wafting through the house as his mother Mary baked for that day. What a powerful test at this very moment. In far lesser situations, Adam and Eve buckled under the test as they ended up eating. Even though for them, there was food on every tree in the garden given to them. And they could at any time reach out onto any tree, pluck any fruit, and eat it. Even though their surroundings were good and welcoming and comfortable, and their stomachs were content, when the serpent came upon them, they failed to obey the Lord. They failed to trust in the good will of their father. They trust, they failed to obey the singular command that had been given to them by God. But Jesus, on the other hand, even though he was in the wilderness with no food, in tough and foreboding circumstances, alone and profoundly hungry, when Satan came to him in temptation, Jesus trusted with rock-solid confidence in the will and word of his Father. And he answered Satan in verse 4 by saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus responds to Satan's temptation to distrust the will of the Father and do things his own way by hoisting the shield of Scripture and hoisting the sword of Scripture, the shield that protects from the fiery arrows of temptation and the sword that cuts through the deceptions and cuts through the temptations and cuts through the lies of the enemy. When Satan lurked, Christ's offense and his defense was God's word. And you know what? Jesus did have the authority. He did have the power to do exactly what Satan was asking him to do. But Jesus would rather be hungry in obedience to his Father's will than filled with delicious bread outside of it. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Let's read that section of text, the, first, the, the three verses, Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3, to kind of understand the context. The Lord, through Moses, wrote this. The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in, the, go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. During Israel's wilderness wanderings, the Lord tested them to know what was in their hearts, to see whether they would keep his commandments, to see whether they would live in accordance with his will, trusting his goodwill and trusting his provision for them. And the Lord humbled the Israelites by giving them this extraordinary type of nourishment in his goodwill and in his good timing. The text says he let them hunger for a while. He let them hunger and then fed them with manna. 
And all of this was to teach the Israelites that they do not live on bread alone. They do not live by the might of their own hands and their ability to provide for themselves, but instead they live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Unlike Jesus, Israel was unable to provide for herself in her own strength, and so God intervened and miraculously provided for them in his fatherly care, reminding them and calling upon them to depend on him entirely. And again, Jesus had it completely in his power to provide for himself. And the Father did not provide any food for him from heaven. And this was his will for Christ in order to prove that Christ is completely devoted to fulfilling and obeying the will of the Father so that that might be applied to you and I. Jesus said as much during his earthly ministry. For example, twice in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus saying things like this. As he was ministering to the woman at the well, at one point when she ran off to find all of the people in her household, the disciples pressed Jesus in John 4.31 and urged Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat! And Jesus responded in 4.32 saying, I have food to eat that you, know, you do not know about. And hearing this, the disciples wondered to themselves, Did someone bring any food that we don't know about? Is there some rogue bread in somebody's knapsacks that I didn't that I that we missed? But Jesus clarified what he meant, saying, My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The food of Jesus is to do the will of his Father. And this is the same answer that Jesus gives, in essence, to Satan in the wilderness. The accomplishment of the work of the Father, that the work the Father has given me, is of greater value than the appeasement of my immediate desires. I completely, you can imagine Jesus saying, I completely and wholeheartedly trust my Father's will, even when it means I must endure the pains of hunger at His direction. It is more nourishing It is more sustaining to live in and to follow and do the will of God than it would be to turn these loaves into bread so that my stomach might be full. The word and the will of the Father are completely and totally trustworthy and Jesus was completely sold out in his obedience to his Father. And Jesus states this concept again in John chapter 6 when he revealed I am the bread from heaven, saying, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you see, even at this point, as Christ hungered in the wilderness, he clung to the will of the Father. And throughout his entire earthly ministry and earthly life, he clung to the will of the Father. And what is that will? That Christ, by his perfect obedience, would ensure that all who look to him in faith, believing that he has come from heaven, that he is Savior and Lord, that he lived the perfect life that we require, died the death that paid the debt for the sin we owed, that all who believe this, all who believe in him, should have eternal life. That is what Christ came to accomplish. And the enemy tries to get him off of that right at the beginning. But with this end goal in sight, 
as the author of Hebrews calls it, his joy, as he wrote in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The tests of Satan were designed to call Jesus away from this task, away from the cross, away from the shame, away from the humiliation and the scorn that won salvation for his people. But Christ, during his earthly life, always kept this goal before him. And he set his face toward Jerusalem and ultimately went to the cross and walked the path of suffering in accordance with the Father's will. And now, as a result of what Christ has done, he has brought many sons and many daughters to glory. And Jesus can say with great joy, as the writer of Hebrews says in 2.13, Behold, here I am and the children that God has given me. For this reason... Jesus refused to turn stones into bread. The Father in eternity past gave a people into the Son's hand and the Son came to save those people and he would not turn aside from that goal. He would not doubt the gift that the Father had given him. And listen, that gift is you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of the Father to the Son is you. You are the gift of the Father to the Son. And when Christ refused to turn stones into bread, he was doing that for you. Jesus would not doubt the will of the Father during his incarnation as he tread the difficult and laborious task of winning your salvation, of winning my salvation. And try as Satan might to turn Jesus as he had Adam before him, as he had Israel before him. This son would not be shaken from his resolve. This son would not distrust the intentions of the father for his life. And the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8 wanted their food and they wanted it according to their timetable. They wanted luxuries and they wanted abundance and they wanted their desires and they demanded that that they were given these things whenever they asked for them and whenever they wanted. Their whole life was wrapped up in these things. And during their wilderness wanderings, they consistently moaned and they consistently grumbled and complained when the Lord withheld these things from them for their good. And their constant anxiety over not having what they wanted when they wanted it led to an ever-increasing distrust in God and his servant Moses. However, we aren't to follow in the paths that have been tread for us in Adam and by Israel and by everyone else who turns away from the good provision and protection that is found in obedience to and trusting God's will. We are called to recognize that our Heavenly Father is our great support. He is our great provider and He gives liberally and He gives freely as He sees fit from His good bounty. And we, his people, are called to, in imitation of our Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in his timing, to trust in his purpose. When he holds something back from you, we trust his will, and we wait, and we receive from his generous and gracious hand when he does give with gratitude. And now, We are the children 
We are the sons and daughters of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we are in him, and we are called to walk in the footsteps of our Lord and our Savior. Jesus is our great example. And as he looked to and continued to obey the Father during his time of testing in the wilderness, so too ought we who follow Jesus fight with all that we are in and by the grace of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, who lives in us. We are to fight to obey the Lord, knowing that his will and his timing and his commands are the best possible scenario for our lives. Now, I don't claim to know or to understand your particular weakness. I don't claim to know or understand your particular testing, but I do know one who does, Jesus. He knows. So let me repeat again Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize without weakness, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the Apostle John appealed to his readers in his first epistle, to avoid giving in to three temptations that assail each and every one of us every single day. The lusts of the eyes, or the desires of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, or the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. Here's what he wrote, 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All of these sins, these that are, Jesus rebuffed them in the wilderness, leaving us an example. And those of us in him, can follow his example by laboring in the power of the Spirit to put those things away. And the three temptations are mere stones, useless objects, put before us by an enemy who hopes that we will grasp onto them, who hopes to get us to believe that we can take this stone and turn it into a loaf of bread that will satisfy us, which is not the case. The lies of the enemy remain stones. Can you imagine trying to eat a stone to appease your hunger. And the end result of all sins is the same. They never bring the return you hoped for. They never turn into the bread that you thought they would. They just remain stones. The enemy's promise that we can turn stones into loaves of satisfaction never hold true. He is a liar. He was a liar from the beginning, Jesus said. And so... While I don't know your exact situation, I don't know what wilderness you are trekking through, I don't know your weaknesses or your touch points, whether it's hunger, whether it's tired, whether it's sick. I don't know. Are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you sick? What stones then is the enemy holding out to you during this weak point in your life and making promises that neither you nor him can fulfill? Maybe it's the desires of your flesh. Perhaps you're experiencing the weakness that has been brought on by feelings of loneliness and isolation. And so what stones are you tempted to try turning into loaves to appease your desires? What are you tempted to do or take part in to bring your flesh and your mind some level of satisfaction 
or gratification. Now, I've been keeping up with the statistics. And during this time of homestay, the numbers of people that have turned to the adult film and movie industry has skyrocketed. Is that you? That stone never turns into bread that satisfies. Also, gluttony is on the rise. One of my children aptly noted yesterday, you know, when we get back to judo, I'm going to, I bet that everyone's going to be a lot bigger than they were when we left. Because all we can do now is eat. Have you turned to gluttony for comfort? Perhaps it's the pride of life. Are you at this time lifting yourself or your opinions or your thoughts high above everyone else's? The number of people I have talked to who have grown more isolated in their views and more antagonistic and angry towards others who don't share their ideas and thoughts is staggering. Are you moving in that direction? Do you feel as though your views, your person is more valuable and important than those of your brothers and sisters in Christ? And I get it. I have to force myself to stop reading today's news because for the most part, I tend to read only the the news that conforms to my already held opinions. And how much worse now that we have endless hours to dive deeper into our own echo chambers. Anger and division, they're never appropriate among God's true children. Are you growing in your sense of self-importance? Listen, put that stone down. It never turns into bread. It doesn't satisfy. It only makes us increasingly bitter people. Obedience to the Lord is the most freeing, joy-producing way to live life. It might not feel like it in the moment as the enemy rehashes his temptations to Adam and Eve to you. Did God really say? And listen, you can always tell when someone is being pulled in the direction of sin by the enemy. You can always tell when the enemy is planting that that thought into someone's mind. The amount of times I have heard it, someone comes to me and says, did God really say that fill in the sin blank here is wrong? They knew their whole life that it was wrong, but now their flesh is pulling them in that direction. And now they're re-questioning, did God really say... That's the enemy at work. Don't give in. It's a stone that will remain a stone. And you might not feel the presence of the Lord helping you as the enemy assails you like he did the Israelites in the wilderness. When the enemy calls them to carve out a golden calf to worship or calls upon them to focus on their immediate needs over and over again to the point that they grumble, complain, quarrel, and mobilize against the God-ordained leadership that God had placed over them and they attempt to return to the slavery of Egypt. It might not feel like obedience to the Lord is freeing and wonderful when the enemy comes to you as he did our Lord Jesus in the wilderness to press you and to appease your fleshly desires in moments of great weakness. However, Jesus was, as he always is, correct and right. His example is, as it always was and always is, correct and right. The most satisfying response to the stones that are held out before us by the enemy is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Listen, obedience to the Lord satisfies the soul. So what's your food What are the stones that are being held out before you? 
How are you when you are at a weak point? What are you susceptible to during your down times? What stones are you tempted to think can satisfy your cravings? How is Satan attempting at this time to cast mistrust on the will of the Father for your life? In closing, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, fantastic book, which is a series of letters from a senior devil named Screwtape, well acquainted with tempting humans to sin, writes letters to a younger devil named Wormwood who is just starting out on his deviling career. And he hopes to help Wormwood understand and learn how and in what ways to keep people assigned to him from obedience to the Lord. And he wrote this one section that I keep coming back to because it's a good reminder and it's a good encouragement for us as we battle against temptations that assail us in the wilderness. Listen to C.S. Lewis at length here. He says, He, God, will set them, his children, off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws, not in fact, but from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. And he leaves the creature, that's us, to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that he is growing it into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He wants them to learn and walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even when they stumble. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemies will, that's their enemy is the Lord, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and yet still obeys. And you can imagine Jesus in the wilderness, looking around, no food, forbidding circumstances, an enemy assailing him. But he remained obedient to the will of the Father, and so we look to Jesus, who in the heat of a trial, when everything in his physical body craved bread to eat, when it seemed as though he was all alone, when it seemed as though the presence of the Father had all but left him, providing an opportunity for Satan to approach him and tempt him, remained faithful and obedient to the Lord in order to save you and me. Follow in his footsteps, church. When you are in the desert, when you are in the wilderness, when you are weak and confronted by the temptations to sin at the instigation of the enemy, trust in the words that come from the mouth of God. Believe them. Obey them. They are the best source of sustenance and nourishment. To God be the glory. Amen. Father, we praise you and we thank you for our great example in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that he, 
in experiencing and enduring and undergoing these trials was securing the righteousness that we all need. We praise you for that because I know that I can't do it myself. I know it's an impossibility for me to do it myself and I know that for every one of us it's an impossibility. We need the perfect righteousness of Christ applied to us. And also we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength by the power of the Spirit who lives in us, even at the weakest points, not to, not to lack trust in you, not to lack trust in your word, not to lack trust in your will for our lives. I pray that we would, like Jesus, rebuff the temptations and advances of the enemy, that we wouldn't fall into the trap of saying, did God really say? But we would say, God said, and I am going to live my life in accordance with that. Give us the strength to do that. Give us the strength to see that stones are just stones and they don't ever turn into bread that satisfies. There is only one bread that satisfies and that's Jesus, the bread of heaven. We praise you, we love you, we thank you and it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.